less than a week till Halloween. That's the music that was Trent Reznor remixing and reinterpreting John Carpenter's Halloween theme. Hey, Corey, how you doing? Thanks for that intro. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's Wednesday, October 25th, 2017. And, yeah, I wanted to take a look at this season that we're in. It's this, this season between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice where all hearts turn to death. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, we're looking at the ending of the life cycle. And, you know, it's just a natural thing to um, feel those spirits that are still lurking in our bellies even though uh, at the, by the time we get to the modern and postmodern world, we play with those spirits as it's as something outside of ourselves. And of course, we use Halloween to do it. And in Boulder, we literally do that. In a, we're pretty solidly postmodern here at Boulder. And one of the characteristics of the postmodern Halloween is the adults do it. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I mean, with the idea of an adult dressing up for Halloween, that we would have seen them as being a weirdo, which was the word we use for people who are not us. Uh, so at any rate, I, uh, I wanted to talk about um, specifically horror movies, because that's one of the ways that we really work. Art, of course, is a way that we work with uh, these animating energetics that are still part of the strata of our own development. And I had a good conversation yesterday with Steve Harper, who has a podcast called What's Your Theory? And he invites me on from time to time to talk about an integral approach to things. And we talked about two movies, uh, Bride of Frankenstein from the 30s and The Brides of Dracula from the 60s. And I won't go over what we talked about because it's over in his site, what your, What's Your Theory? Uh, but it was a really interesting, interesting conversation. And, you know, it just made me think about that, that the, the, you know, I was talking about the strata of development that we all still have within us. And that we just seem to come out, you know, as human beings programmed to find meaning and to tell stories and to see that everything is alive. And that's, uh, you know, early development, whether it's an uh, individual little kid where, you know, the whole world is alive with magic or indigenous people who have very much that same you know, worldview, take on the world. And, you know, it's got its upside and it has its downside. The, the upside is that you're alive and joyful and everything is meaningful and everything is talking to you and you're at the center of everything. And when you enter the flow of that, uh, as a little kid, you could see it. I could sort of remember it as a kid, you know, just being a force of nature myself. And you could see little kids when they're in that flow, how just joyful it is. That's why we love kids. And the downside, of course, is the terror that comes from that. Because, you know, there are monsters under the bed and in the closet. <laughs> and... You know, you could try to talk a kid out of it, but I, I always love this wonderful circular logic of a child. If there's no monster, why, then why am I afraid? And I always love that. But, um, 
you know, one of the things that happens as we grow is that we sort of leave that magical world. And for a lot of us, we actually never get over it in a way. I, I can remember talking to a therapist in my early 20s when I st first started doing therapy, and I was so sad, and I was. I was just depressed in my life. And I was talking to my therapist about what a joyful child I had been. And, you know, I was telling him how I used to play in my sandbox and, and you know, the, the, the world was alive and I would, you know, hours would pass and I, had, I hadn't had that joy again in years. And he said to me, I think this was one of my first integral lessons. He said, you want to be six years old again? And I realized, well, wait, maybe we're supposed to grow out of that. I mean, it's painful, but apparently you can't stop it, you know, and, and a lot of us, as I did, have a, lot, a big grudge about that, you know, that we, and we, we seek to find that joy again. Uh, but, you know, the good news is, is that we continue to grow as we continue to grow into the higher integral stages, we can indeed get back in touch with that magical child. And we start that process in green, in post-modernity, the therapeutic culture. But, you know, one of the other ways we deal with it is, um, you know, just by, um, well, if we look at the development of humanity, we see that the stage after the magic stages, after the archaic and tribal stages, is the, um, you know, and, and even at the red stages where, you know, magic and spirits become sort of superheroes, these great power gods, is that traditionalism comes along, Christianity, Buddhism, uh, these great axial religions a couple thousand years ago. And their great project is to wring magic out of the system in favor of a great myth. So, you know, all your rituals, all your talismans, all your superstitions, all your golden calves, you know, all your casting of evil spirits on your enemies and blood feuds, all of that's out. And now all power is vested in this transcendent God in, in the sky, you know, or in this other larger dimension of, of which we are within. And, you know, magic is, and it, of course, we see the church, uh, the great history of the church uh, stamping out magic and burning witches and that sort of thing. And that's the project of that. And I could remember myself as a little kid, uh, when I, I was probably seven or eight years old, we lived in a house where we had a coal furnace down in the basement. And my job as a seven-year-old kid who didn't mind running up downstairs was to, when the fire got going really hot, to run down and uh, close the draft door, we called it, the door at the bottom of the furnace that had the, sucked up the air. And so my mother and dad would say, go close the, the draft door. And there, became, there came a time when I was terrified to do that because our basement was dark and there was the coal bin over there in the corner where the coal was. And there was this big furnace where there was this inferno inside. And it was just something archetypal about it. And I just, there was monsters. And I, I remember creeping up to the door and slamming it as quick as I can and running back upstairs. And that was, you know, went on until I began to realize as I grew into my good Christian religion, uh, little Christian boy, that, wait a second, God will protect me. God won't let a monster get me. God is way more powerful than any monster. 
And that's, you know, part of me growing out of that. So, um, so how does modernity, the next stage, feel about all this? And that is, they feel that the monster and God are both delusions. <laughs> and what is real in the world is a result of objective forces, you know, random, chaotic, you know, no intrinsic meaning. You know, weather is a perfect example. Weather is reduced from, you know, a movement of spirit. I mean, if you're pre-modern mind, it's interesting to even go out in nature with a pre-modern mind, and just wipe all of the what you know about the world away and just experience it, that you realize that the weather is a movement of spirit, you know. And, and, but for modernity, it's, you know, some function of wind speeds and gigabars or something. And um, so that's, you know, where we are. But sometimes this magic and these spirits still want to rear their heads. And so, you know, this is like in the Frankenstein movie where, you know, the gypsy woman comes along and says, it's a curse, you know, or, you know, it seems, sir, that your house was built on an Indian burial ground and the spirits come back with a vengeance. And that is, you know, this, this great category of horror fiction, horror, horror movies. And, uh, and, and I actually want to talk about one of my new favorite movies, uh, horror movies, that I actually think has an integral sensibility. It's called The Witch, A New England Folktale. But to just set it up a little bit, and it was uh, Steve and I were talking about, as I said, the, the Brides movies, the Frankenstein and Dracula. The, the Dracula, Brides of Dracula was uh, made in the early 60s. And it occurs to me that it was made at the same time as one of my all-time favorite horror movies, uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and how different they are. You know, the baby Jane is a psychological thriller. There's no supernatural qualities in the, that movie. It's, the, you know, all of the evil is uh, vested within the characters. And, um, and I love that movie. That's Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And, um, and then Brides of Dracula is about a supernatural monster. And, you know, those are two big categories of horror films. And, you know, we see it today. This, one of the, the biggest horror movies, of biggest movies of the year this year is uh, Stephen King's It, about a clown, an evil clown that lives in the, you know, underground sewers of the small town. And, um, and I always thought that it was the movies where there was sort of a foot in both camps, where is it psychological or is there actually something that's real about this that are the most scary? And the uh, quintessential movie in that category for me is The Exorcist. And the question, and, and why it was so terrifying to me, was, is this girl just having a series of psychotic episodes? Or is she actually possessed by the devil or evil spirits? And, uh, and that tension is so delicious because we actually feel the reality of these, you know, earlier, um, how we made meaning in these earlier stages. And that in, and I don't know, I'm still confused about, is, are they ontologically real? That is, do they exist whether or not we believe in them? 
or are they just deep structures? And, you know, I don't actually know, but it sure is fun playing with that. And so that brings me to the the movie that I wanted to uh, spotlight today. And that is a movie called The Witch, a New England folktale. It's a movie that was made, oh, I think maybe three or four years ago by a young filmmaker. Uh, his name is Robert Eggers, 33 years old. And I really do think it's a beautiful work of art and has uh, an integral sensibility. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, I, I just did a, a review on the movie Dunkirk, which I also would offer as a work of integral art for, for consideration as a work of integral art. And I was thinking, what is it about these two movies that put it in that category for me? And one of them, one of the reasons that it's very subjective. So, you know, it either is true for you or it isn't. But I left both of the movies feeling not just moved, but enlarged, bigger. It's like I had found a new piece of reality that I could breathe in and contain and wrap my arms around. And that is just, you know, what do you, do you just thank you? to the filmmaker for that, you know, that's what art can do. And that's, you know, as art moves forward, we move into a new stage of artistic expression or aesthetics. Um, I think that, um, um, well, here's how, well, here's why I think that this movie falls into that category of integral. Um, just to set the scene a little bit, it's about a time in American history that I think, first of all, is really fascinating from an integral perspective, and it's the the, the world of the Puritans. And this, these are the people who came over. The, they were religious fanatics in England and came over to be able to be free to worship their way, which is very you know harsh and fundamentalist, and was indeed a world where they had one foot in the traditional stage of development, where they clearly believed in God. They were, the Bible was the center of the whole thing. But if the world of black magic still existed. And of course, the world of black magic and possession and devils and so forth exists very floridly in the Bible. And um, so, you know, th this is that tension. And, and, and one of the uh, things that we see as we look at great art and literature and so forth is these are often stories of the tension between two stages of development. So here we have these people, you know, one foot traditional, one foot pre-traditional in, in the magical world. And, uh, and this is, you know, just driven by their life conditions, their circumstances, you know, they're living in extreme circumstances. They're, you're very insecure. They live in this walled city surrounded by what they see as devils, you know, the savages. Uh, they are living in this harsh nature um, and, you know, struggling to survive. And so, you know, you're finding meaning. We're meaning-making meaning -making machines. And, you know, how do we explain good fortune, misfortune, um, often it's in terms of supernatural forces. So at any rate, this is the story of a family. It's a father and a mother and their five children who are cast out of this walled community because they're even more crazy religious than the regular Puritans. And they, we don't necessarily know how or you know, what the details are, but they are cast out. And it's just an interesting um, 
you know, view or understanding of what it was to live in these previous uh, stages of development where conformity is essential. You know, so much of our modern sensibility and postmodern sensibility is around the, you know, the sanctity of freedom of expression, of the expression of the individual, you do your thing, I do my thing, all of that good stuff. It's wonderful. It's huge progress from conformity. But in these cultures where, you know, you're struggling to survive and everybody has to be flying in formation, um, we don't have any extra capacity for your craziness. You know, you got to support the leader. You got to play by the rules. You got to do what you're told. You got to, you you know, play your role. And if not, you know, if we can't have a, you know, pretty simple functional relationship, you are shunned, cast out. And of course, that's a standard procedure at these stages of religious development. And being shunned or cast out of the community often meant death for the whole family. It was a way of getting, you know, keep people out of the system without necessarily executing them, but it was essentially that. But in this case, the family survives. You know, they they found a meadow in the wilderness and they built a farm and this farm is surrounded by this very ominous, deep, dark, mysterious forest. And and so there they're living. They're scratching out a, a living. They're farming. They build a cottage. And but you can see in this the, their interiors, you know, in their left-hand quadrants, uh, that without the moorings of a community, uh, other people to relate to, particularly other adults, that their dark imaginings begin to get the best of them. And, the, the, of course, they are beset by a series of tragedies. And as these things unfold, they begin to see the devil at work. And sorcerers and witches at work all around them, including in each other. And particularly, they get focused on one of their children, an adolescent girl, that they begin to scapegoat. And, you know, a scapegoat is, in the pre-traditional mindset, is, I mean, it's literally a goat (laughs) that the community would drive all their sins into and then kill and therefore kill all of the evil spirits. And, you know, we can still feel that energy when we want to get rid of something or someone uh, that we can, you know, drive it into uh, somebody who sort of carries all of our sins. So um, that's what they do. And I, I won't go any further than that because I don't want to, this is, you, you can get this far, uh, this much in just reading the, some of the Rotten Tomatoes reviews. Uh, which, by the way, the movie gets a 90% rating from the critics. It's very highly regarded by the critics. And um, and so uh, from an integral perspective, uh, first of all, it's telling this story, you know, so it's sort of taking both sides seriously and it's wonderful sort of integration. Uh, but for, beyond that, it, it, it's doing something that, uh, first of all, I, I, I'm, I, gave credit to Christopher Nolan and Dunkirk for this same thing. And that is that uh, Eggers really was committed to verisimilitude, this idea of using actual photographs of actual things and no, no CGI or very little 
And um, it's like in Dunkirk, you know, in some ways it was, the, the, it, it purified this battle of 400,000 men and, you know, 800 boats because it was you know, smaller than that. And we never saw this big CGI spectacle. But at the same time, he had actually 4,000 real regulars. He had 60 real boats. And there is something about that um, reality that brings an X factor to, um, you know, to, this, to the work of art. So in the case of Beggars, he, he really went, went for it. I mean, they actually, the filmmakers built the cabin that the family lived in. The actors joined in. Uh, they filmed the movie in real time seasonally. So it went from a spring to a fall. And uh, they filmed as the actual crops that they actually planted were growing and changing. Uh, they did all of the interior scenes with op open flame candlelight. And, um, and then one of the coolest things that they did, and I really never heard of this before artistically, I'm assuming somebody has done it, but... But what he did was the dialogue was drawn from real dialogue from real people in the 1630s Puritan villages. And what he did was he, he you know, went through people's diaries of that time, court records, prayer manuals. Uh, he used Cotton Mather's actual accounts of witchcraft. And um, as he put it, I've read this interview with him, He's, he said, and I'm quoting, he said, I would find and take phrases out and line them all up. And I had phrases that had to do with the devil and phrases that had to do with being happy and phrases that had to do with being sad. And he worked these phrases into the dialogue. And I loved that. I felt like I was being bathed in a real transmission you know, that rang through the centuries. And it transmits a real respect for these people somehow, for their real humanity. They are us, you know. And it was really exciting to know that. Uh, but <laughs> this gets me to my one major critique, and it's the same critique I had of Dunkirk. And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand the damn thing they were saying. You know, I mean... First of all, it's this sort of still postmodern, in my opinion, idea of you don't even care if the words are clear. I mean, the actual soundtrack, audio soundtrack, isn't clear what people are saying. Uh, that was true of Dunkirk. Uh, and, you know, the, the sort of aesthetic idea is don't think too hard, and, you know, just feel it and let it wash over you. Fair enough. And, and it's testimony to the quality of the rest of the film or the other qualities of the film that I followed it anyway. But, um, you know, it was Shakespearean. It was, anyway, might as well have been in another language. Uh, but, you know, acting amazing, art direction beautiful, as I said, cinematography, all of great music. Uh, and I am really looking forward to seeing it again with the subtitles, just as I am with Dunkirk. And if you watch it this weekend, and it's, you know, horror movie weekend, um, watch it with the subtitles. And I will say that I, again, I think this is a really serious problem and I don't know exactly how to solve it. Uh, but, um, you know, it was very frustrating to the people who I went to the movie with. They, everybody left frustrated, including me, actually. I sort of came to love it later. It's the same as I did with Dunkirk. Uh, and I noticed that even though the critics gave it a 90% on 
Rotten Tomatoes, the viewers only gave it a 54. And that may be why. Uh, the, 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 the main thing that I think uh, puts it in as sort of a new category for me and as a candidate for an integral consideration is the ending. And, uh, you know, I didn't know how they were going to end this thing. Uh, and I've heard writers and novelists and movie makers talk about, you know, telling a story and that one of the most difficult things about telling a story in general is getting a powerful ending, you know, a real ending. And this one was good. This one was mind blowing. Uh, and uh, every time I think of it, I get a deep, lower chakra thrill. You know, this is the part that's getting sort of feels expanded to me. And what I loved about the ending is that it was not enigmatic, which is typical of sort of a green sensibility, postmodern sensibility, where you, you know, there's no real meaning and that we're trying to express here, but just sort of the display of life and it's ever changing. And we start somewhere and we stop somewhere. But this one has a period at the end of the sentence. And it could have been amb ambiguous and mysterious. God knows, you know, if it had, I would have still loved the movie. But it wasn't. It was specific and precise and vivid. And it moved the story into uh, a completely perspective-shattering world space. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. I, one of the critics I read said, it's weirdly progressive by being honest. And I agree. So, uh, horror movie weekend coming up, less than a week to Halloween. So, uh, if you're interested in my favorite horror movie, uh, check out The Witches, a New England folktale, and watch it with the subtitles. <laughs> <laughs>